You guys can go back to your seats. And as you guys do, I'll invite the rest of you to stand once more and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll be reading the first 17 verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You may all have a seat. And as you do, please also bow with me in prayer. Sovereign God, Sovereign God over all, we acknowledge that you are in control of all things. You're in control of the greatest and farthest reaching happenings that affect the entire nation and affect the entire world. And yet you are in control of all the circumstances of each of our individual lives. Lord, we deserve the fullness of your wrath for the sins that we have committed against you. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands, not even one seeks you. But we have each turned away from you to evil and away from good. Now, Father, we have received your mercy You've opened our eyes to our need. You've opened our eyes to the depths of our sin and our utter helplessness to fight against it. And not only that, out of the darkness you have shown a great light, the light of mercy and grace, the light of the Savior who offers peace and hope to all. And we thank you, Lord, for the love that you have shown us and undeserved kindness to wretched people. Father, it's in the light of this grace that we consider the ways that you're working in the lives of our church and of our world at large. We thank you for the joy of being able to witness, even virtually for some of us, the wedding of Eric and Sonia yesterday. And as we shared in the joy of witnessing their wedding ceremony, 
Also just being reminded of your relationship with your church through the gospel. We pray that you would be the center of their marriage and that their relationship would display Christ in every way. We also thank you for the joys of those who have recently welcomed new additions to the family. We think of Andy and Esther, and we pray that you would be with them, strengthen them as they continue to transition to life as parents, and for Edith, that she grows and learns about who you are through them. And as you are the sovereign God who brings blessing and joy into our lives, we also acknowledge that you are a sovereign God in allowing the dark times of life as well. And many in our congregation have lost parents, grandparents, and other family members recently. I ask for your comfort to come upon these members and their families, and that for those who don't know Christ and their families would recognize that our lives are short and they are fragile, and they will unavoidably end. Death awaits each one of us, the only difference being that those with Christ can face death with a hope that will not disappoint, and those without him will have no hope at all to cling to. And I pray that even though, even through this tragedy of losing loved ones, even that's painful and real, I just pray that you would accomplish your work in the midst of grief and reach souls that may have otherwise been hardened against your word. We're also daily reminded of the ever-increasing numbers of COVID-19 cases, even in our own community and even amongst our own members, some have been exposed Father, for anyone who might have been infected or exposed to someone who has been infected, we ask for your protection and for your recovery, that they may be able to rejoin the life of the church body as soon as they can. We thank you, Lord, that you have used members of the church to care for one another in appropriate ways during this time, showing the kind of love that you have shown each of us. Help us to abound more and more in the love that you have given to us. And would this also be an opportunity for our church to trust and rest in you, to realize that at a fundamental level, we just don't have control over the things in our lives, and we can demonstrate a faith in you and a dependence on you. May our overwhelming testimony during this season of COVID-19 be that the Lord our God is our strength and our fortress, the forgiver of our iniquities, the healer of our diseases, the redeemer of our lives from the pit, and the restorer of our souls. Lord, be with us today. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I pray that each of us here would hear your words today and see them as a precious treasure, far more valuable and far more comforting than any vaccine or any immunity might provide. You are our comforter truly, and you are our healer, and you are our savior, and you are our God. We thank you, Lord, for this day. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding us with the word of the Lord and also in prayer. It's a joy this morning to be with you as our time seems to be moving along and we're getting closer and closer to Christmas and it's been a rough season, I know, for many and many in our church family who whether you're watching online or you're not able to be with us and the struggles have been many and it seems like the touch points with those who are suffering in some way from COVID or things related to that, it just seems to be increasing and we feel it closer and closer with people we know and we love. And so um, 
I just want to say to you all, we love you. Even if we can't see you or be with you, we, we miss you dearly. Um, it's a joy each Sunday morning for the elders and the deacons, those who are here to be able to gather before service and to pray for you all, for the church family and for those who are struggling. It's just one of the delights in our life uh, to come to Christ and to look to Him in the midst of what uh, is and, and may be for a little season a, a challenging time. Well, one of the things that Mark Dever does, if you ever listen to any of his podcasts or any of his materials, is he tries to put things in perspective, whether it be in the church, when the church is going through hard times, or when the nation is going through hard times, to put it in historical perspective and then biblical perspective. And history, of course, is not greater than Scripture, but it does help us to understand that we aren't the center of the universe, that we're not the only ones who are having a hard Christmas. And we're not the only ones in the history of the world who have traveled this path before. As Ecclesiastes tells us, there is nothing new under the sun. And as Paul tries to encourage the Corinthians as they are struggling, where he says, there is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man. And then goes on to say that the Lord will provide a way through that difficulty and struggle. Whatever struggle you are going through, the Lord understands, the Lord knows, The Lord has ordained this, but also this is not new. There are those who have traveled this path before you, and the Lord has sustained them, and He's encouraged them. And I know for many of us, it's hard to believe that there could be a Christmas season worse than a COVID-19 Christmas season, where we're sort of on lockdown, we can't travel more than 150 miles without quarantining, we've got to get swabs. Everywhere, ears, eyes, nose, and the list goes on and on, right? But I want to take you back to a Christmas that was worse than ours, just to give us a little bit of a perspective. I want to take you back to Christmas of 1944, which for many in Europe was one of the worst Christmases that all of Europe had ever experienced. Many in Europe, and in Holland in particular, uh, were experiencing what was the coldest winter and Christmas that they had experienced in a long time. And many people were on the verge of starvation. I mean, we've got so much to be thankful for. I'm just thinking of all the people who labor to make sure that our food supply lines and our healthcare workers and our hospitals are running. And we need to pray for them because that's no easy job. But in 1944, Not only was it cold, not only obviously was this World War II where there was bombs being dropped in cities and and people dying, but people were near or close to the point of starvation. Some people even would recall boiling uh, shoestrings and looking to wallpaper to find something to eat, especially during the winter months. And uh, to intensify things in the spring of 1945... Soldiers invaded Holland. Soldiers invaded Holland and the Dutch celebrated. The Dutch celebrated. And to appreciate why they celebrated when more soldiers came in and invaded their country, you've got to go back five years in Dutch history to the spring of 1941. And the spring of 1941 was the advent or the arrival of the Nazis. In Holland, and it was an advent or arrival that began with a lie. 
The Nazis arrived and came into Holland with the lie that they had come to help the Dutch. They said that publicly on radio. They had come to help the Dutch and they had come to protect the Dutch people. And what followed was the brutal enslavement of the Dutch. The Nazis raped the Dutch women. They killed their sons. They enlisted all the young men into much of the German military in order to help. They took everything that the Dutch had, bringing many by the time 1944 came to the point of starvation. And in the spring of 1945... Understandably, the Dutch celebrated because of their desperate, desperate need for someone to liberate them from the tyranny and the horror of men. In that time, it was in particular, they were Nazis. And they celebrated because the soldiers who had come and invaded their country this second time around were predominantly Canadian. They were part of the Allied front where the Americans and the Germans were heading in, excuse me, the Americans and the Brits were heading in to Germany, and the Canadians were given the responsibility to come in to Holland. And with their arrival, the Nazis who had enslaved Holland for the past several years fled. And the vast majority of the people in Holland celebrated. Christmas, brothers and sisters, is the celebration of, of the advent or the arrival of a savior, a liberator, far more wonderful and far more necessary than Canadian soldiers. But to truly appreciate and to celebrate this advent, we must first appreciate what it is he came to save us from. And until we appreciate the tyranny and the ugliness and the horror of what sin has done in our lives... It's hard for us to begin to appreciate the greatness and the beauty of what Jesus did when he came that first Christmas. And so to appreciate what Jesus came to do and to appreciate him and his salvation that he has brought. This morning I want us to go back to the beginning. In fact, that's where Paul shines the light and brings us back in 1 Timothy. To go back to the God-breathed words of Genesis. To go back to the advent of of sin, the advent of sin and its lies into our world and lives. And we do so in order to gain an appreciation of exactly what Christ has done and exactly what we're celebrating at Christmas time. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 1 is God's creation of the heavens and the earth and the six literal days in which he creates everything by his word. And as we come to Genesis 2, the Lord God gives to Moses the fine details of his creation by his word in the lives of the first man and woman. And he gives us this intimate picture and portrayal of what his word does in the life of Adam and Eve. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden. This is after the Lord has created the first man from the dust of the ground. And has breathed into him the kiss of life. 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, 
you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. Last week for our Advent service, we heard the God-breathed words of Matthew's account of the first Advent of God's Son. And what's interesting, when you go and read Matthew, and you read his account, he refers in the Greek to the Genesis. This is the Genesis of Jesus. And he and John both make a point in Mark's, excuse me, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, John's gospel, they make frequent references and point back to Genesis. And that's because when Christ came, he came to give us a new beginning. Well, a new beginning from what? Well, we see here in Genesis. But in Matthew, in that God-breathed account of the Genesis or the advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we heard how upon Jesus' arrival, he was given the name Jesus. And why was he given that name? Because according to the promise of God's worth, this child, Emmanuel, would one day save his people from what? Their sins. And it's in the God-breathed words of Genesis 3 that God shows us the sin that Jesus came to save us from. Very specifically, Genesis 3 is the advent of sin, the arrival of sin in our lives, in our world, 
in our marriages, in our relationships. And it's here in Genesis 3 that God begins to show us our desperate need for a Savior. Our desperate need for a liberator. Someone to come and to set us free. In Genesis 3, obviously it follows Genesis 1 and 2, to which we've devoted many, many Sunday sermons. And suffice it to say, the God-breathed words of Genesis 1 through 3 are the beginning of our story. Our story begins with the Lord God creating and ordering His world and us in six literal days. And He creates and orders us and our world in love. And He does so by His Spirit and His Word. Repeatedly as you go through Genesis 1, the Lord makes that point over and over and over and over again. That His love is given to us by His Word. And His Word comes and His Word orders everything. And this brings us to our first point. God alone gives and orders light and life and love by His Word. God alone gives and orders light and life and love by His Word. Now, Christmas season, is this is a season where these are all the things that we celebrate. In our songs, in our Christmas trees, wherever you go for shopping, if you can shop anywhere. It's this celebration where you will see lights everywhere. You will see a celebration of love. You will see this celebration of life. This is what this season is all about. But very rarely will you find the Word of the Lord. And what we've done is we've taken the celebration and the blessing and all the good things about Christmas, and we put it in the forefront, the gifts, and the word of the Lord we put in the side. But as we come back to Genesis, what we're reminded of is it's the word of the Lord that brings these things into our life. And not only brings these things into our life, but builds us up in these things and protects these things and sustains these things and orders them And puts every aspect of our life in the place where it's supposed to be. So that we can maximally enjoy the God who gave these things to us. And so we can maximally live and share with others this light and this life and this love that God alone gives. Now every story has a beginning. The story of Christmas begins, brothers and sisters, in Genesis chapter 1. And it begins with the first advent of God's Word. Because that's what comes in to the darkness and the emptiness and the void. And that's what creates and orders everything. And that's what gives us light and life and love. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis chapter 1 for just a moment. I'm going to read from the very beginning. Genesis 1.1. I just want you to look and consider and meditate on where does God's word come into the picture and where does God's light come into the picture as we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. 
And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. As you'll recall, what happens over the rest of Genesis 1 and the next five days is this similar pattern of creation by what? God's word. God speaks the world into existence out of nothing. It's his word that brings all of these things, including all of life and all of light, into existence. And it's God's word that orders day one, day two, day three, day four, and finds a place for all of creation. And this creation by God's word culminates on day six with God's creation of the first man and woman. Creation of the first man and woman in God's own image. And he gives to the first man and woman a commission. They are to be like him. And they are to be life givers. They are to fill the world with God's light and God's life and God's love. And they are to rule over all of God's creation as his representatives together. And they are to do so with the word of the Lord according to his word. And then on day seven, God makes a holy day or a holiday. Maybe we could say even the first Christmas. On day seven, God makes a holiday, a day that is set apart and that is holy and is a day of rest that's devoted entirely to the celebration of God's good work, the good work of his word that has created a world that is filled with his light and his life and his love and has done so out of absolutely nothing. And it is, brothers and sisters, an incredibly beautiful picture what we aspire to when Christ comes again and it's what we hope for and try and imitate at our Christmas events and obviously COVID makes that hard but what do we want to do we want to get together at Christmas with family and loved ones and the people who are nearest and dearest to us and we want to gather around a table that is filled with gifts and food and laughter and joy and filled with lights and the crazy uncles and the difficult folks we want them to go far 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 away Right? And it's an imitation as we labor together to try and imitate in some way what God gave us by His Word on that first Sabbath. And it's with these words very intentionally, very clearly, and very repeatedly. God shows Moses and us. It's His Word that is the expression of His love. And His Word is what brings all the good things into our lives. Without God's word, there is nothing but darkness and silence and void. Brothers and sisters, this is true of the world. This is true of our nation. This is true of our church. This is true of our relationships. This is true about every aspect of our lives. And the way we try and sort things out, brothers and sisters, when there are hard things in our life, is we try and get rid of those hard things. I understand. Julie will tell you. I'm I'm with you. Ugliness comes my way. I want to run the other direction. I want to get as far away from it as possible. But we reverse the order because when we come in, we see where God starts is He starts with the light. 
He starts with the light. He starts with bringing goodness and good things into our lives. And we forget, brothers and sisters, that God's word alone gives us his light and his life and his love. God's word alone orders everything in the way it should be. God's word alone sustains and protects the light and life and love in our lives. And without God's word, Brothers and sisters, that light and that life and that love is going away. Where God is not present, His Word is not present. Where His Word is not present, His light is not present. His life is not present. And His love is not present. And it's an amazing thing how the church in America has forgotten this very thing. Where we feel we can get together at Christmas and have Christmas trees and we can have songs and we can sing carols. And the last thing in our minds is the word of the Lord and we think we're having a celebration. And is it any surprise over a period of decades where we see these very same churches dead as a doornail? Well, what happened? We forgot about the one thing that gives us life. And as we come to the end of Genesis 2, God shows Moses and us what his word does. In the lives of the first man and woman. It brings the first man and woman into a relationship and place that abounds with God's light and his life and his love. God's word brings that first man and woman to a relationship and place of unity and holiness. First with God and then with one another. Christmas time and the holiday seasons can be one of the most difficult times for families. Expectations are high for sweetness and enjoyment. And yet somehow things can become quickly a mess. And I know that we've all experienced it because there is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man. I remember being at Grace Community Church and working as an intern there and and meeting together with all the interns who worked there after we'd come back from our Christmas holidays. And all these seminary men, Love the Lord, filled with His Word, going out for Christmas holidays and coming back. And I remember one of the men saying to me, he says, I forget, Mark, I forget. I forget that going home for Christmas is a ministry. It's a mission. You know, he said, we think we're going to go, great food, great times, and we forget that there's sin. And we forget what we need is the good news of the gospel and that I am there to minister to my family and I'm not there to simply have a good time. We forget that it is God's word that gives us unity and holiness. And it's what unites us together. And as we come to the end of Genesis 2, God shows us so beautifully. What is it that brings this first man and woman together? It's the Lord. He brings the woman to the man. He shows her to him. He provides this opportunity and then at the end, the word of the Lord comes about leaving and cleaving. And where does this lead at the very end? It's the gift of God's word that unites this man and woman as one flesh before their creator without shame or without guilt. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we had a Christmas season without shame or guilt? brothers and sisters. Well, the word of the Lord has done this in the life of the first man and the first woman. And it's a gift from the Lord. He's brought them to a place where they are free to live and to serve 
and to enjoy God and one another without shame or guilt. Brothers and sisters, this is God's desire for his people. This is his desire for his family and for his household. And this is what he accomplishes with his word. And so it should come as no surprise that the very place that sin begins to attack, sin attacks the light of God's word and the order and authority of God's word. If sin can come and start to put a little bit of shade and shadow on the word of the Lord, sin can come and begin to separate you from the light and life and love of the Lord. And things start to take a very different turn. This brings us to our second point for the morning. Sin attacks the order and authority of God's Word. Sin attacks the order and authority of God's Word. As we come to Genesis 3, our story takes a very ugly tailspin downwards. And this dive downwards begins with the advent or the arrival of sin in the garden and in the lives of the first man and woman. And it's an advent that begins as sin always does, whether it be in our church, our marriages, or our home. It's an advent that begins with a seemingly harmless question. Verse 1, did God actually say? Did God actually say? And it is a question that's first presented by one of God's creatures, the serpent. And throughout the rest of Scripture, the serpent will become the symbol for Satan or the devil, the fallen angel or adversary whose bitter life and lies are devoted to destroying the light and the life and the love of God. And how does Satan, through the serpent, make this attack on all that is good, the glory of God, the goodness of God, He does so, brothers and sisters, note very carefully, by attacking God's word. And he doesn't attack it directly. He comes quietly, and he comes indirectly. And in his attack, the devil always looks for an ally on the inside. He always looks for an ally on the inside. Maybe it's a deacon. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's a disciple. And you'll recall that in Jesus' ministry, that ally at times and moments, was Peter. Peter persuading Jesus with the mind and words of men rather than the things of God. The devil and sin is always looking for an inside player. And in the garden, it is the serpent, the craftiest of all animals, who lends his tongue to the devil's scheme and lies. Now, if you go back and remember in Genesis 1, the Lord God makes it clear to all, He has an authority and order to all of creation. And it is the authority and order of His Word. And in Genesis 2, He shows this in the lives of the first man and woman. He gives His Word first to whom? Gives it first to the one whom He created first. He gives His Word first to the man. Not as someone who is better or greater or smarter than Eve, the first woman. No, he gives his word first to the man as the servant leader of his word, as the one most responsible for keeping and communicating the light of his word. Men, that's our responsibility. 
We're not smarter. We're not better. We are not superior. Those truths are made evident day by day in our marriages. But God does have a divine order according to his word, where there is an office and a role where we are called to be the most responsible for keeping and communicating the light of God's word. Now in our family, there are times when I'll go to shepherd's conference with the elders, or we'll go on an event with the elders, and I have to leave the home for a few days. And before I do so, typically I call my two boys. And I will speak to Ethan first. And I will explain to Ethan, I want you to look out for your mother, and I want you to look out for your brother. Because dad is going away for a few days. Now why do I say that to Ethan? It's not because he's smarter than Joshua. It's not because he's better than Joshua. It's not that he's superior to Joshua. I'm doing it because Ethan came first. And he's a year, a year and a half older than Joshua. And there are things that he understands or that he's lived through with me that Joshua isn't quite there yet. And so the Lord has given him a responsibility that his younger brother doesn't have. And yet it's all done with that word that is given first to the one who has come first in order to protect and love everybody in the family. And that's what the Lord did in Genesis chapter 2. As a good and loving father, the authority and the order of his word is a gift to protect his children and to keep them together. To keep them together. Brothers and sisters, the authority and order of God's word is not a yoke. It's a protection. It's a protection of love to keep us together with the Lord and to keep us together with one another, to protect that unity and that holiness, which is a gift from God's word. And you see where this is going, brothers and sisters. When we shun or we minimize or we demean the authority and order of God's word, what we're really shunning is his love and his life and his light in our lives. What keeps us together? And the church is a history. You just look at the history of the church and you see that over and over again. The moment it starts to step away from the authority and order of God's word, things start to fall apart. Now, it's not visible, but typically it happens in a generation or two. Well, in Genesis 3, how does the serpent try to separate Adam and Eve from the light and the life and the love of God? He targets the authority and order that protects their lives and keeps them together. He targets the authority and order of God's word. Now, in sports, you know, especially in professional sports, there's always one player on the team who is designated to be a disruptor. And his job is not to get baskets. And his job is not to get touchdowns. His job is to get in the ear of the other players and to get in their head. Say unkind things or puff them up or mess with them. So that when the quarterback or the coach makes a play, that team is listening more to the man who's in their head than the one who is calling the plays. And if you can disrupt one or two, you can disrupt the whole line. And pretty soon by the end of the game, everything is falling apart. Well, in Genesis 3, the serpent attacks God's authority and order in the garden. How does he do it? He does it by bypassing 
the man whom God has appointed as the servant leader of his word. And with his question, did God actually say what he does is he appeals to Eve as the leader. He comes to her. He ignores the man. And he appeals to her with this question. He doesn't make a statement. He appeals to her. Did God actually say? As if her understanding, her experience, her opinion of God's word is all that matters. With this question, the serpent tempts the woman to stand over God's word. And he tempts the woman to reverse the order of God's word, where it's no longer the man who is the servant leader, the one to whom the word is first given. But it's Eve's opinion that matters most. With this question, what the serpent is doing is he's replacing the light of God's word with Eve's own personal opinion and experience and understanding. He's reversing the order, brothers and sisters. He's reversing the order in a subversive way, and he does it in a gentle way. He just comes straight up. And brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how often in ministry we see that happening. Elders will be standing, and someone will come up to a deacon and whisper in their ear, well, what would you really think about this? Or similarly in families, you see, where a child is unhappy with what the father says, so they go to the mother. Dad really say this? We see it in organizations and groups, and we see it in counseling over and over again. The same playbook every single time. Go to the number two or go to the number three. And just ask a question in an innocuous way. Brothers and sisters, this is how sin always begins. It appeals to our pride. It appeals to our authority, our order. And it appeals to our opinions, our experiences, our feelings. And it crowns our experiences. And it crowns our opinions. It crowns our feelings as the leader and light of our lives. And it gives that word of God a nudge. How often have we been together? Well, in my experience. Well, in my opinion. Well, let me give you my two cents worth. And what we see with that is the word of the Lord is nowhere to be found. And suddenly we're in charge. And then what we've done is we've created a world in which our feelings are leading every aspect of our lives. And what a roller coaster, brothers and sisters, that is. Well, this is where the serpent is going. And this is how he's targeting things. And it's not long before everything, brothers and sisters, is backwards. And just look at our world, brothers and sisters. Look at our churches, look at our marriages, look at our families, look at our society. Everything, brothers and sisters, is backwards in comparison to the light of God's word. And that's what we champion. From gender to rules to children to every aspect. And brothers and sisters, darkness begins... By taking one step away from the light of God's word. It happens one step at a time and Satan knows that. If I can just get them one step away. If I can just get them to think about their feelings or their opinions. And get that a little bit more. And I can get in their head in that way. I've begun to win the battle. And this brings us to our third point. Sin raises doubts about the goodness of God's word. Sin raises doubts about the goodness of God's word. If you want to divide or destroy or poison, 
a marriage, a family, a relationship, an elder board, or a church. Just raise doubts about one or two people in that group. Just raise doubts. And this is what the serpent does with his seemingly harmless question in verse 1. Put the scriptures up here for you. Where he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now I want you to go back. What I put up here is I've gone back to Genesis 2, 16 to 17. So you can compare it to what God actually said to Adam. And what God actually says is incredibly gracious and generous. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Where does God's word start? It starts with grace and goodness. It starts with permission and freedom. Adam and Adam communicate to your wife, you can eat of every tree of the garden. I've created all of this for you. It's an expression of God's love. God's grace always comes first, brothers and sisters. But then there's responsibility. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And it's said in a way to protect you. Adam, I'm warning you. I'm doing this in love to protect you. How do we reverse it, brothers and sisters? There's a big reversal in our lives. What do we think of the Lord? Ah, I can't do this, can't do that. Can't drink at the Christmas event. You know, because Peter talked about something about alcohol the other night and the Lagos thing. And I, I can't go out and do A, B, C, D, and E. And Pastor Mark said, I can't, I can't, I can't. We reverse it, don't we? Because that's what sin does. Sin always takes what God does and he puts it backwards to mess us up. Okay, and when we come to see what the serpent says, where he says, did, you actu- did God actually say you shall not eat? He goes to the prohibition restriction first and he changes the words and he shades it. And he shades it in a negative way to focus on what God, part of what God has said, to cast God in a negative light. And cast the tone in a negative light. To paint God as a harsh and tyrannical and miserly old man. Brothers and sisters, how often when we get discouraged do we think of the Lord in that way? If there is not a spouse, a child, a happy Christmas... If there are not friends, if there are not all the things that we would like to have, and suddenly we start to look at God as the withholder of good, the cruel, mean, old grandfather with white hair, right? And that's how God begins to be shaded. And when we go down that path, Satan delights because what he's done is he's shaded God's word. He's twisted it. And we remember the bits and pieces that are ugly and we cast it and reshape the image of God. In the spirit of our hate. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And here we see, brothers and sisters, how every last word from the mouth of God matters. The context matters. The order matters. The grammar matters. The spirit matters. And it's why, brothers and sisters, men, you need to know your scripture if you're going to lead your house. Because you need to protect your wife and your family and your children when they are discouraged. And the order gets reversed. And women, you need as a servant helper... To know your scripture well. When your husbands get discouraged. When work is not going well. When they are being demeaned. When ministry is not going well. 
And they start to get it backwards. And you know your scripture well enough to say, Oh, husband. And Julie's done this for me many times in kindness. Mark, is this really the gospel? Things are turning ugly. Is, is, is it dependent, Mark, on your work and labor? Honey, I've worked so hard for this. And it's getting so ugly and so hostile. But she'll remind me, is this what the gospel says? That you work hard and everything is good? That you labor hard for Jesus and everything is peachy keen? Brothers and sisters, our knowledge of the gospel and the word of God, every last word counts. And it's deacons. It's why the Lord says that deacons have to hold the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. Because people are going to try and divide the church by coming to a deacon and saying, did they really say that in the sermon? It's worth noting that the serpent doesn't initially call God a liar. He just raises doubts about the goodness and the desirability of God's word and God's He just casts the shadow. And sadly, rather than simply telling the serpent to ask God, rather than simply telling the serpent to ask her husband, Eve naively takes the bait. And she takes the opportunity to lead and correct. Not her responsibility. She doesn't have to worry about correcting the creatures. That's not her responsibility. Who was it who named the animals? Adam did. That was a responsibility that was given to Adam. She doesn't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. Irresistible. The opportunity to lead and correct. We find that. Ladies, the opportunity to lead and correct your husband when he is not correct. As opposed to pointing him to Christ. And appointing him to the word of the Lord. And pointing him to a good shepherd who will graciously bring him along. It's one of the reasons one of my mentors in biblical counseling has told me that at times there are some women's Bible studies that become destructive. It's not the study of God's word. It's the spirit at times that someone is there to lead and correct when that is not their responsibility. Sadly, Eve jumps in and she says in verse 2 and 3, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now this is a response that seems mostly correct. But brothers and sisters, when it comes to God's word, mostly correct is wrong. And I'm going to leave it to you. This is your homework. Go and look at this verse and see how Eve has changed the word of the Lord. She's added to it, and she's exaggerated. When you first hear it, it doesn't sound like that big of a deal. And then when you look at closely, in comparison to Genesis 2, 16 through 17, you've seen she's added, and she's changed. Suffice it to say, Eve's reply shows she has already taken a few words and a few steps away from the light of God's word. And brothers, this is how darkness grows in our lives one step at a time. We think, brothers and sisters, that we know God's word better than we do. We're a Bible-believing church. We read that story before. I can't tell you, even when I was at Grace Community Church, someone coming and saying, we're going through this passage again. 
Well, the assumption is they knew it perfectly and they had everything that God designed and it had transformed their lives and they never have to hear that passage of Scripture again. Pride, brothers and sisters, goes before a fall. The presumption that we know God's word better than others so that we can correct others. Our responsibility, brothers and sisters, is to point someone to Christ because he knows God's word perfectly and to point them to the word of the Lord and let the Lord and the Spirit shepherd them. The presumption that we're in a position to come in with our own opinions to correct others. That's dangerous territory, brothers and sisters. In 1994, George Foreman got back in the ring. He had been humiliated 20 years earlier by Muhammad Ali and had lost the heavyweight championship of the world. 20 years later, at the age of 45, I believe, he got back into the ring to fight a man who was almost 20 years younger than he was, Michael Moore, who had the heavyweight championship belt at that time. Many people thought it was a publicity stunt and a joke. And for the first 10 rounds, it appeared that George Foreman took a beating. And for the first 10 rounds, Michael Moore dominated. And for the first 10 rounds on all the scorecards, the judges all picked Michael Moore to win that fight. But in Michael Moore's corner, his coach or his trainer, Teddy Atlas, started to say to him, you're getting too close. You're standing right in front of him. Step aside, step aside, step aside. And later what George Foreman would share was he said, I hid my power from him. For nine rounds I hid my power. And he felt like I didn't have much of a punch. And then I used my left jab just to nudge him. He said, because I was used to hurting cattle. Where you nudge, nudge, nudge to get them into the fence or corral or the place you want them to go. And what George Foreman had been doing for nine rounds, he was letting Michael Moore feel like he was in control of the fight. Getting comfortable. And what George Foreman was also doing is he was getting Michael Moore to take a step in the wrong direction. Just one step, just one step, just one step. Until Michael Moore lay flat in his back, in the dark, because he never saw George Foreman's right hand coming in the middle of the tenth round. Brothers and sisters, that's what the serpent is doing with Eve, and that's what he does with us. He takes us away from God's word, one word at a time. And as he does so, in the beginning, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Until we're lying flat on our back with everything taken away from us. Just like Michael Moore. It brings us to our last point. Sin separates us from the light of God's word one word at a time. Sin separates us from the light of God's word one word at a time. Brothers and sisters, that's what the serpent has been doing the entire time with Eve. He doesn't come right out and say God's a liar. He goes step by step. He flatters Eve. He appeals to her. He gets her to feel comfortable. He gets her to feel like she's in control. And he's moving her step by step by step. So that when the lie comes and the knockout punch comes, 
She doesn't even see it coming. Dr. MacArthur has made the point when he talks about men falling in ministry that men do not fall far. Men do not fall far. And I guess we could say the same thing for women too. That it doesn't happen, men, overnight. That suddenly we're holy and we're right with God and the next day we're cheating on our wives. It doesn't happen that suddenly we're just intimate with God and we're the holiest saint and we're like the Apostle Paul and then suddenly we wake up the next day and we abandon our children. Brothers and sisters, it happens in steps. It happens step by step by step. Darkness, brothers and sisters, comes in and it starts to switch God's authority and order in our lives and turns everything backwards. Our marriages, our families, our churches. And brothers and sisters, this is what COVID has done. COVID has come in and it's exposed how backwards our world is. When you look around, our world, it's always been crazy. Our world where everything is reversed from God's word. It has always been that way. It's not like there weren't divorces before COVID. It wasn't like there wasn't murder before COVID. It wasn't that there weren't suicide attempts or people getting depressed or anxious before COVID. All COVID has done is it's come and it's exposed it and shone a bright light. And basically squeeze the sponge so to speak. And we see everything that comes out. And what comes out brothers and sisters has been a fair amount of darkness in our world in general. And brothers and sisters, it didn't happen overnight. It happened one word at a time. Brothers and sisters, what is it that we celebrate at Christmas? What we celebrate at Christmas is the advent or the arrival of a Savior who has come to save us from our sin. And very specifically, what we celebrate is that he has come as the light of the world. And that his light is brighter than our sin. And the joy that we celebrate is we can't get out of the darkness on our own. So he's brought the light to us. And we lose sight of this a little bit. And we touched on it yesterday at Eric and Sonia's wedding. And the point I was trying to make with Eric and Sonia yesterday is their charge as they go out. Was that Jesus, we need him more than just his presence or a Christian lifestyle. What Jesus has come to do is he's come to take charge of our lives. He's come to bring the light of God's word into our lives. And that, brothers and sisters, is an amazing thing because that, that absence of God's word in our lives is the reason why our lives and our marriages and our relationships and our work, everything is backwards. We live in the tyranny of our feelings and our opinions and our experiences. And look, brothers and sisters, where that has gotten us. Our experiences and our feelings and our opinions, however good they are, they don't make us happier or better in the long run. They enslave us. And the good news that we celebrate is what we read up here in John chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what Jesus showed in the light in the lives of those disciples, he comes and he brings 
brothers and sisters, the light of God's word. And that's why when you go through the Gospels, when Jesus' ministry begins, it begins with him proclaiming the good news, the gospel. And that gospel comes in and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He addresses our sin, and he does so graciously. Why? Because grace comes with truth. And God's coming, and he's shining light and saying, I have come to deliver you from this. How beautiful and how sweet is that? And then as we follow the lives of the disciples, we see what he does. That Jesus not only brings the authority and order of his word, he shows the disciples the goodness of God's word. As they live and walk with Jesus, they see that God's word is indeed good. And with his word comes life and light and love. Then Jesus restores the authority and order of God's word. When you look at those disciples and where they are in the beginning and where they are afterwards, Jesus is putting their lives together one word at a time. He does so, brothers and sisters, with a word that brings those disciples to the foot of the cross. Because it's there at the cross that they begin to see. Maybe we don't know God's word, As well as we thought we did. We need more than a Bible brothers and sisters. We need a savior. To rescue us from our sin. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. What we celebrate brothers and sisters in Advent. Is a savior whose light. Is greater than the darkness of our lives. the end of these Advent services, I've tried to give us a meditation and an application. And one of the things I'd like you to consider over this Christmas season is to consider how Jesus is putting your life back together one word at a time. How is Jesus coming into your life and putting it back together one word at a time? What aspect of your life Is he bringing light into your darkness? Many times we say, yes, we want Jesus. But do we really want him to turn our lives right side up? In the beginning, it feels like our lives are being turned upside down. That's what happened to Joseph. It wasn't like he was jumping up and down when Jesus showed up. It's like his life was turned into a a hot mess, it seemed, in the beginning. And yet, that's what the Lord was doing to turn Joseph and Mary's life right side up. When Christ comes into our lives, brothers and sisters, it means that there's change. And he's doing that change in order to reorder our lives so that he is king. And so that his light and life and love abound yet more. Maybe it's in our parenting. Maybe it's in our relationship with our spouses. Maybe it's in our work. But Christ has come to set us free from the darkness in every aspect of our lives, brothers and sisters. And so this Christmas... I would like you to meditate on where in your life is Christ shining life. As you do so, there are these things that I get many people to do, come and see me. As you struggle with discouragement or hard things, it's helpful to do this grid where you list your circumstance or triggers, your feelings, your thoughts and desires. As life is hard, if there's a disappointment, if there's something that's upset you, if there's a conflict and inevitably these things come over the holidays, to take a moment and sit down and write this out. And then go to God's word and see what he has to say. And allow the word of the Lord 
to take you out of the darkness that exists at Christmas and to allow His light to bring His authority and His order and to reshape it so that you can enjoy the greatest thing at Christmas, fellowship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, You have come as the greatest of saviors. And You've come, Lord Jesus, to bring us back to Your Word one step at a time. Thank You for loving us and doing what we could not do for ourselves. Thank You for shining the light into the darkest recesses of our souls. Thank you for bringing your light and your love and your life into our lives. Thank you for restoring your authority and order. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for liberating us from the darkness of this world. May this Christmas, Lord Jesus, be a celebration of who you are, our Savior and our Lord. In your name we pray, amen. All right, thank you, Pastor Mark, for just giving us that sermon and just really reminding us what we truly need during this Christmas season, during this Christmas season, um, this dark time. Um, we really need 